And lastly, we're in our Life Together series still. And tonight, today, um, I guess I'll just say there's a lot of trigger warnings for today. I'll just say that. Um, we're going to do some, some biblical surgery. But to kick us off on that, I want to bring out a very special lady um, who has been a part of my life together, all my life together. Um, yeah, you can give her a warm welcome. She's worth it. She's worth it. Um, this right here is my Aunt Charmin. And uh, she is a major hero to our family in, in many different ways. Uh, and I, I don't say that lightly. If my cousins were all here, um, they would be shouting and screaming too because we really do. Um, we rise up and we call her blessed. We have watched her live an absolutely extraordinary, beautiful uh, life of following Jesus and devotion to Jesus. And, and her stories, you know, put us to bed many times when we were younger. And um, she just has, has really chosen a path that few choose, and it's been so beautiful to watch and so good to watch. And so I asked her if she would come and just kind of share and pray out of the treasure of her life. And in particularly, and this is where we're going, and it'll make sense later, but she's chosen to live a life of singleness and celibacy. Um, not, not as a begrudging um, choice, but as, as a real offering to her Lord. Adventure. Adventure. Um, so I asked her to come and just share and pray out of that depth. So will you welcome her? Thank you guys very much. Thank you, David. I want to say that I appreciate all of the words, and, and, but I want you to know that the reason we're here is because Jesus is the hero. Mm. Jesus is the one that calls us all. Jesus is the one that imparts his gifts to us. Jesus is the one whom we serve. Jesus is the one who walks with us day by day through the thick and through the thin. Jesus is the one who will never leave us. Jesus is the one who will never turn his back on us. Jesus is the one that promises that the gifts that he gives are good. They're good. Mm. They're good. They're good. Jesus promises us that he will never leave us or forsake us. I think I said that again, but you need to hear it again. Okay. He is the one that out of all of time had the wisdom to know when we should be born and how we should act out our lives in the gifts that God has given us. When I was five years old, uh, I had a call to go to Africa, and I was really happy. I, I got to meet someone from South Africa right over here. Hey. Okay. <laughs> so I'm um, from Cape Town. Wow. Uh, and I got to see a sister that brought two brothers to the Lord over here, too. I mean, we're seeing Jesus on the move, right? Okay. But, but when I was five, the Lord called me um, to Africa. I didn't know where. Uh, but I was going to go to Africa, and that became my single purpose. And to have a single purpose to live a life, I needed to have a single gift. And God gave it to me. Mm. And I have lived a life that only God can do this, okay? Mm. Only God can. And to him be the praise for the things that he has, in my obedience to following him and his gift and seeing it is a good gift. Yeah. It is a good gift. It is a life-giving gift. It is an enabling gift. Mm. It is something that I have because every day Jesus is with me. He's got to be with me or I'm going to fall and I'm going to make a mistake. But guess what? His grace is there. His grace is there to enfold me. His grace is there to embolden me. His grace is there to get me through. And with a smile, 
on my face and hopefully the dripping of heaven's fragrances on mm. others. Jesus calls us to good gifts. Good gifts. I want to leave with three scriptures. I'm, I'm not preaching, I promise. Okay. <laughs> so, um, so James chapter 1, 7 says, embrace embrace, that means to hug tightly, the gift to best show the grace, the beauty, the power, the truth of our amazing and holy Jesus. And he gives to each of us a gift. And that gift is a perfect gift because it comes from above. And it comes down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. His amen is amen. He is not a man that he would lie. He is Jesus, the rock on which we stand. Philippians 2.13 says, For God is working in you, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. And that's really what it's all about. This life ain't ours anymore, kiddos. This life is his. And we are coming under the submission of his love and his redemption and his reconciliation and walking in his covenant to do what pleases him and bring the kingdom of God into people's lives. And finally, in Psalm 32, 8, sorry, I'm going to call. <coughs> Psalm 32, 8, God promises this. I will instruct you and I will teach you in the way you should go. And I, God, will counsel you with my loving eyes. That's the God who calls people to a gift of marriage, a gift of singleness. It is with eyes that are loving, eyes that are gracious, eyes that are kind, eyes that know what best you need to live a life that pleases him and impacts eternity. Jesus loves you so much that in all of the world's plan, he chose this time, this place for you to be his ambassador, whether it is married whether it is single, whether it is widowed, whether it is divorced, whether it is whatever group of people I'm forgetting, okay? He loves you, and he wants today for you to know that love includes the embrace of hope and truth and power to live a life of overcoming, of victory, of one in which there is no shadow because Jesus himself is walking beside you, enabling you, giving you the grace to take each day and bring it to him as an offering. God bless every single one of you. Mm -hmm. And as you walk out these doors today and as you listen to what the word of God has to say, may your vision to your gift that he has given you, may it be emboldened and may it be the thing that drives you as the focus to finish the race and to finish the race in here. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter in. And I think I need to tell you, David knows, um, when I die, my, my memorial service is going to have wedding cake.
Wow. Um, yeah. So I have some other things to say. Uh, um, yeah. Well, um, we're going to continue in this Life Together series, and, and Life Together really is complex. I think that's something that we wanted to um, make sure and bring out in the last uh, few messages, kind of the intro messages that, that Ryan uh, and me and Alec shared that life together is not just family as far as nuclear family. Um, that, is, that is obviously a very important part of our life together. It's not just church family. That is a very important part of our life together. But it's somehow a combination of all those things. And, and in the Greek, there's actually a word called oikos, which it is a yogurt. It's pretty good. We all know that. Um, but it, it's, it's, it's basically a term that's a little bit more like household and almost a little bit more like who you're connected to, who you're responsible for. And, and so that, that we all know as we continue to walk through life, our family, the people that we're called to walk alongside, serve, love, care for, um, it changes over time. And some of us have a little bit more Brady Bunch type oikos going on right now. Some of us have a little more singular type oikos in some ways, and, and we're trying to work all these things out. And so to this, the messages that we're sharing, we're going to go through a bunch more of these as we go, um, the complexities of, of our oikos, but we're trying to remember um, that God has called all of us in t- to be together in community. We're, we're not supposed to do this life alone. We're not supposed to do this life with only the people we choose for ourselves either. We're supposed to do this life with the ones that God has called us to be in relationship with. And Jesus himself even said at one point, who is my mother? Who is my brother? When his actual mom and brothers were coming to try and meet with him. But he said, the people who are following God's ways, those are my mother and those are my brother. And so there's this shifting that we're trying to make, this expanding that God's trying to do in our hearts. Um, Not only oikos as a Greek word to kind of understand life together, but the goal of life together for the people of God is a Hebrew word, and it is shalom. And there's a lot of depth and meaning to this word. It's, It's way beyond just peace. Um, We actually have a definition that I found that I like. It says, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness, and delight. We cannot forget delight, that God has called us to delight. And that's one of the things I've loved about walking with Sharman for so long, is even in her singleness, there has never been the lack of pure delight and joy Um, But delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. A state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and savior opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. It's this oneness. It's it's everything fitting together properly. Um, It's shalom. And as we know, shalom is, is tough to come by. Um, in, in our life together, it makes up our relationships. We have all kinds of relationships. And all it takes is for one of those relationships that we care about to turn or to go sour. And even if all the other relationships are going well, we're, we're stressed. We're losing sleep. We're confused. We don't know quite what to do. 
Um, I can prove this to, to you. Um, if you're in a relationship you care about and, and someone has either turned their back on you or broken relationship with you, it affects you in such a deep, deep way. Um, even if there's a relationship you don't even want to be in and that person um, is, is causing you problems, then you can lose your shalom. So wh- when I was in high school, I was a senior and me and my senior friend, we thought we were so cool and I was driving my little truck and he had a giant squirt gun, and we were driving after school one Friday or Thursday, and he was squirting all the freshmen. And, and it was just like, you know, we felt like that was what we were supposed to be doing with our lives at the time. We didn't, we didn't really, there wasn't a brain between the two of us probably. And, and as we were doing this, um, we looked down the road, and we saw this guy who was riding a bike, and he had, I just remember he had a Taco Bell bag just swinging back and forth like that. And, and so my friend was like, oh, let's get that guy. And so I kind of swerved over a little bit. And he's like, Psh. we just nailed this guy. And, and, and we kept driving. And then I looked in the rearview mirror and the guy turned around and his Taco Bell was like, because he was chasing us down. And I was like, okay. So I kind of slowed down a little bit. And every time he got close, I would just speed up because I was in a car and he was on a bike. And so I just, sure, making him even madder now. Um, and then on Friday, a friend came to me and said, hey, did you mess with a guy on a bike yesterday? And I was like, yeah, I, long story, but my friend's name was Geronimo. I was like, Geronimo squirted him with a squirt gun. And, and he goes, you know who that was? And I said, no, I have no idea. I know he likes Taco Bell, though. Um, <laughs> and he said, that was, that was Bo White. And I was like, okay. He goes, he got out of prison yesterday morning. And, and, everyone, and you know Henry White? And I was like, well, I know Henry White because Henry White got in a fight every single day after school. It was like there was a fight every day after school and Henry White was one of them. That's all we knew. We, just, we didn't know who the other one would be. That was the fun part, but we knew Henry White would have been. And, uh, and I said, oh, and uh, oh. And, and then there was a sister who was also a senior and she, I was more scared of her than any of them. And so Friday night at the football game, they came after me, and he was trying to choke me, and this old guy came over and broke it up, and I mean, nothing really happened. It was all quick, but I remember all weekend long, I was in a relationship with Bo White (laughs) that I did not want to be in, and I didn't sleep. I was so scared to death, but luckily on Monday, just in case anybody's going to lose sleep over this now, um, I came Monday, and they had said I had suffered enough, so it was cool now. So I don't know how that works, but anyways, it, it's amazing how troubling these things can be. On a little more serious note, um, one example would be divorce. Whether you have been in divorce yourself, whether your parents were divorced, whether your children are divorced, it doesn't matter. Any connection you have to something called divorce is devastating. It's earth-shattering. And the effects of those things, they last a lifetime. And they can be overcome by the grace of God, no doubt about it, but those things are still there. And this is where our, our life together, our, our shalom is broken. And, uh, and what God wants to do is he wants to show us and teach us how to enter back into that space. Uh, what it says in, in Isaiah 32, that the fruit of righteousness will be shalom. So when we walk in God's ways, the promise that it's not just do what I say because I'm God and you're not. Do what I say because I'm trying to make you miserable. God says if you walk according to his design, the result will be shalom. It will be shalom. 
And then it says its effect, and I love this, will be quietness and confidence forever. You and I know that we've met, we've come across people that have a quiet confidence. They don't have to say a lot. They don't have to be real demonstrative. There's just something about them. It's because they have shalom. They have the peace of God. And that's the goal. We're trying to figure out how can we in our life together, you personally, us collectively, how can we figure out what God's design is for us to have life together so that in our church we can have shalom. So that in your own oikos or household, you can find shalom. So that's what we're going to be doing. And that leads us to um, Isaiah or 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where we're going to get a specific prescription, a, script, a specific design for how we do life together. And it does include singleness and marriage. So another trigger warning for you there. Um, and uh, the epistles, uh, we use that word. It's basically just the word letters. The New Testament has 21 of them. And these are letters mostly written by a guy named Paul, who was kind of the architect for the Christian community um, around the world, dealing with not just Jews, but as it expanded into non-Jew places. Um, and, and, and then all of the challenges that they were experiencing. And he writes um, epistle after epistle to kind of help them navigate what they were dealing with. And in this one particular, he's actually answering a question that the church in Corinth had written to him and said, can you help us with these things? And one of the things that, that he's writing about comes in, in 1 Corinthians 7. So let's uh, pick up there and we'll figure out God's design. One last image to put in your mind actually before we jump in there. This is helpful for me. It might be totally kindergarten for you, but guess what? Kindergarten was a great year for me, okay? So it's the, it's the dot by dot coloring page where you gotta follow the number. You connect the dots, but you gotta follow the number. And if you stick with the number, you eventually get the image that you're supposed to get. That was not what I got a lot of times because I had trouble following the numbers and I would kinda do my own thing. And, the, and you do that, you get confusion and, and you don't get the result. And so what God is giving us is a color by design, kind of dot to dot. We follow his practices and we get ultimately to see the picture. Often we don't see the picture at the beginning. And that's why it's so hard and so challenging. But if we stick with it, we get to see the goodness. And that's what my Aunt Sharman has taught me so much about. So 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. You ready? You got your shields up? Because this is not politically correct. This is, this is not culturally correct. This was written a long time ago. They didn't know about Twitter rules and stuff like that. Um, and it's actually so offensive to our nature, the flesh within us as well. So you're, you're going to get surgery. Surgery. It's coming. Now concerning the matters about which you wrote. So they asked, and Paul is responding, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. It's always fun to pause here. <laughs> um, yes, you did read, hear that correctly. Read that correctly. It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Paul himself is writing this inspired by the Spirit of God, authoritative, transformative words that have stood the test of time, preserved for us so that we can know the way. And he says it's good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. Now, if you're in that state of singleness and 
you've been in that state maybe longer than you want to be, this is a challenge to you to hear that it is good. And as we'll hear about soon, it is a gift, actually. But what he was dealing in this day is there were people in Corinth that were confused about what is the way of Jesus in the area of sexuality for sure, but even more so singleness, marriage, and all these type of things because they had their own norms that they had grown up in. They had the Roman cultural norms. They actually had the Greco-Roman cultural norms. And those of them that were Jewish also had some Jewish cultural norms. And now there was this way of Jesus that was coming and basically intersecting with all of those, those things. And so Paul is trying to help them with their confusion, help them know what is the way. Now you and I, whether you believe it or not, we have our own cultural norms that we've been taught. One, because a lot of us have been raised in a Judeo-Christian environment, so we have some of that. Um, a lot of us were, were, grown, were, were raised in, in, a, in a family dynamic that maybe didn't have the same kind of values as the Scriptures. We definitely live in a culture that not only sub- subtly has been teaching on and on and on their own ideologies about sex and all of those things, but now there's a not-so-subtle um, kind of teaching and ideology that's being presented. And, and so we have our own mix. So whether or not you feel like you, you have confusion or not, most of us are probably a lot more confused than we understand. And so here we have the way of Jesus. And first and foremost, we've heard in the Scriptures it's not good for a man to be alone, Genesis. We've heard in the Scriptures and Proverbs that he who finds a wife finds a good thing. So that is true. This is not a denial of those things, but this is an addition that Paul thought was very helpful to the Corinth church to understand that it is also good and it is not second class. To choose a life of singleness and celibacy. It is good. It's beautiful. And it produces so much more than just what you need. It produces an example and a beauty in, in, in the world around you as well. But, he says, because the temptation of sexual immorality, each man should have his own wife and each woman her own husband. So he says, because there's so much confusion, because there's so much challenge, because there's actually so much sexual immorality out there, and so much damage has been done, it's actually really good for for a man and a woman to choose to be faithful to each other in marriage and to serve each other in that way. And look what he says in the sexual reality. He says, the husband should give to her wife, to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body. Trigger warning, but the husband does. Untrigger warning, likewise the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except perhaps by an agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Welcome to church. <laughs> I sent a weekly email out to the entire church today with a little bit of a trigger warning there. So if you're not on the email list, eh, what can I say? It's not your... um, but here, he says it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with women. And basically what he's saying, it's good for a man to show self-control in this area. And, and, and it's good. It's, it's a beautiful life. It's not a second-class life. It's a good, beautiful thing ordained by God, to to walk in this way. And then he says, but if you choose to go married, that's a good thing too. But you need to understand that even in marriage, sex is not about you. 
It's not about you getting satisfied. What it's about is you actually serving the other. And that's what he says there. He says, basically, you need to understand that it's as if your body is not your own anymore, but it belongs to the spouse. Now, again, I'm, I'm sure there have been guys who've done horrible things with these verses because they didn't read the rest of the Bible or even the very next verse. And, 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 I, and I'm not doubting that that's a reality, and I, and I hate it. It's horrible. It's not the design of God. And it creates devastation. But what's supposed to happen is when a person does decide, instead of being devoted to the Lord in this way, but, but to now devote themselves to a wife in a covenant or a husband in a covenant, even then you need to have self-control. Even then it's not all about whatever you want. But instead you have to live as if you are, are doing this act of sex or whatever it might be in order to serve and please the spouse that you're connected to. Never let it turn inward. Never let it be about you. Or it becomes poison, like Alec talked about, when we conflate these intimacies. We can, we can poison the intimacies that God has given us. Whenever we turn something inward, we are poisoning an intimacy that God has given us to set us free and to create beauty in our life. And not just in our lives, but all those looking on get to see the beauty of it. I, on Saturday, I was at this football game, and I wanted to fight this guy so bad. Maybe I'm telling too many stories about myself right now, losing some respect. But it was this guy, and I know nothing about them. Then this could be a totally super pastor judgmental situation. But um, he and his wife were sitting in front of us, and then the, like, it looked like some friends of theirs were sitting um, up next to him. And, and, and the entire game I just watched, he had his back turned to his wife and he was talking to the friends. And then I remember she would every once in a while kind of like try and get a word in or whatever. And he just never, he just always had his back turned to her. And she would like rub his back a little bit and say something. You could tell she was just, she was trying to just be in the conversation. And he just was so back turned. And I don't know, you just got this air that, that, you know, something was wrong. And, and she wasn't pleasing to him in some way. And it just, oh, it just made me so mad seeing the way his back was turned. But, but the truth is, is that happens so easily in our hearts, even in marriage, over time, in all relationships. But, but our hearts can start to just turn against. And maybe we don't close off our whole heart, but there's just a part of our heart that slowly starts to turn cold towards our spouse. And what we need to know is when, when, you're, when you're stepping out of this gift that God has given you of singleness and celibacy, when you step into marriage, what you're stepping into is now to serve that person wholeheartedly. And you're going to have to watch your heart because so easily it's going to want to turn against or become displeased with. you got to fight that because the whole thing you signed up for is to serve this person, to meet their needs, to will the good of the other above your own. This is the design that God has created us for. And if you're choosing to, to, to do that to the Lord, which my aunt has chosen and many others, that's a beautiful thing. By the way, there are so many awesome examples of this in our church. I could have brought up a number of people. I love it. But when you, when you choose to, to step out of that and you choose to go enter into a marriage relationship, what you're doing is you're not saying, that, okay, now I'm going to satisfy my needs, but now I'm going to will the good of another person's needs above my own. And that's the call that, that we're supposed to do there. And ultimately, it's because of lack of self-control. Now, on the lack of self-control issue, 
There's a little bit of a thing that's kind of crept into the church. I've heard it um, from time to time. And I think part of it is because of the epidemic of pornography. Um, I think part of it is because of the culture that we're living in. Um, I think part of it is because maybe people haven't been taught correctly or haven't been walking with enough people um, tightly enough to actually stay strong. I think people have a misunderstanding about the fruits of God's Spirit. Um, one of the fruits of God's Spirit, it's the last one in the long list, so people forget about it, but one of the fruits of God's Spirit is self-control. Yeah, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace. We kind of trail off at that point. But self-control is one of the fruits of the Spirit. God is wanting us as believers to live with a different level of self-control than everyone else around us. And he doesn't want to do it at a burden. He wants to empower us through his Spirit to live with self-control. And by God's grace, my wife and I, we got to experience this. And we were celibate until the day we got married. And I didn't get married at 12 years old. People are like, oh, yeah, you probably got married at 12. No, I didn't get married at 12. I got married at 27. My wife was 12. No, just kidding. She wasn't 12. <laughs> no, she wasn't. She wasn't. She was of marriageable age. <laughs> I don't know if she's here. Hopefully she's not here yet. Um. And there's many other examples like that. And another thing, porn never got its hooks in me. I've never had an issue with porn pornography, by God's grace. And I'm not saying these things, so look at me, all these things. I'm saying these things because I'm sick of hearing people say, oh, there's nothing you can do. We just have to manage it. No, that's not true, especially if you are young. Please hear me. You can do it. And it is worth it. And you are not missing anything. You don't need to test drive. Please, for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the people who are going to be watching you and later on who will be watching you, maybe your kids or other people, for sake of all the people that don't know it's possible, please take Jesus up on his offer. Let his love and his power compel you and constrain you and give you the self-control that you need to not create more mess in our world, more brokenness. Please, it is possible. It's not too hard. It is good, as Paul would say. Now as a concession, verse 6, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I am myself am, but each one has his gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. So Paul is, is saying here, I'm single, and I actually wish that everybody was single because it's that good. Because I'm not missing out on anything. And now Paul, we have to understand, history would teach us and some of the things he said that most likely Paul was married at some point or at least betrothed in some way. Because of the role he had within the Sanhedrin and some of his Jewish upbringing and all of that thing, um, it was most likely that he would have been married or betrothed in some way. And so what happened is either she might have passed away, or when he began to follow Christ, maybe she said, I'm not going with you. 
And we'll talk a little bit about that in a moment. But Paul, but Paul was here living a life of, of, of singleness and celibacy and saying, hey, I wish everybody could experience this because it's great. But he said, each of you need to understand whether you are single or you are married, it is a gift. It is a gift. And if you watch any beer commercial, it's not saying that. The beer commercials, which... I know of some of the best commercials. But the beer commercials make it very clear that if you are single, mm, you're out in the cold, something's wrong with you, we all feel sorry for you. But then they say if you're married, oh, you got that ball and chain, what are you going to do, man? How you get away, get with the brothers? You know? I remember that one, it was like the guy was sitting on a couch with his wife and he was just staring so intently at her and she was talking and saying all these things and then all of a sudden a timer went off and it had been 10 seconds and he and his brothers all were like, I went 10 seconds, man! I listened to her for 10 seconds, it's amazing! That's a funny joke, but it's, a, it's not a funny thing because it's saying that marriage is, is a curse. It's a ball and chain. And the Bible speaks to that very clearly and says, no, both are a gift. If you are single, not only is it a gift God has given you, but you are a gift to all of us. And the church has often felt like it's the loneliest place on earth. I get that. I love what Alex said. The church is supposed to be a, 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 a what do you say? <laughs> oasis, that's the word. An oasis of intimacy in a desert of loneliness. And that goes for single people just as much as anybody else. We've got to figure this out. I'm sorry, single people, that we have made you feel second class. It is not true. It is not biblical. It is wrong. And I am sorry. You belong here. And what you have to offer is so important. And we're so thankful that you're here. Be patient with us. Teach us. Help us. And if you're married, it's a gift. Your spouse is a gift. Your wife is a gift, man. Treat her like that. Your husband is a gift. Treat him like that. I know he's annoying. <laughs> but he's an annoying gift. <laughs> we've, got, we've got to get in line with the design of God. So we can find that shalom. Um, verse 8. To the unmarried and the widows, so even post-marriage here, I would say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than, than to burn with passion. Paul's just being kind here. He's saying, hey, you know, I, I think you really should first and foremost say, yeah, I'm going to go single and celibate. And I'm going to find the goodness there. Paul would say, you're going you're gonna to find it. It's, it's a good thing. But you guess what? If, if somebody comes along and you're like, hey, I like her, I like him, and you end up getting married, that, that's okay. That's okay. Just remember, self-control. Just remember, don't turn it selfish. Serve, love. That's what we're called to do. Um, and then he says, to the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Now, from our cultural context, this might not mean the same thing as what it hit their context with. Because in their day and age, uh, Alec mentioned this a little bit in his message last week, but women were, were 
mostly looked at as property. And, and there was some, some of those changes were happening in Roman culture a little bit. Uh, but for the most part, everything was basically set up to make sure the men could get what they wanted. And what was so radical is when the way of Jesus was being preached in these places, it came against those things. It started to drive a wedge in those things. And what ended up happening was women started coming to the follow Christ like crazy because it gave them value. It put them in the right place in God's eyes. It helped them see that they weren't second class in any way, shape, or form. They were liberated. And it helped a lot of guys who were willing to submit to this maybe stop the abuse. And what was happening in the Christian community in that day was so counterculture. It was directly against so many of the norms that had been established. It was radical and offensive and peculiar. And the Romans were like, this will never take. It's the worst church growth strategy you could ever have, preaching messages like that. Nobody's going to want to come to that, especially when you got the the temple of Diana over here used to have prostitutes that you could come and sleep with as a part of your worship. What are these guys doing? And yet because it was true and because it was beautiful and because it produced such goodness, the Christian church grew like wildfire within the Roman context. And right now what we're preaching is extremely against our counter or our culture. Not in the same ways per se. But it's very unpopular, and it's going to get more unpopular, potentially. A singleness is beautiful and good. And when you're single, you should be celibate. That's the way of Jesus. That's the way to keep, to make sure we have self-control, and we don't cause more damage than we should. And when you're married, you actually practice self-control there, too. And make sure that everything is done to serve the other. And a woman's body belongs to the man. And a man, your body belongs to her. I mean, these type of things in that day were going to be so crazy. And they sound crazy today, too. But they're so liberating. And then he says, to the rest, I, not the Lord, say that if any brother has a wife who's an unbeliever and she consents to live with them, he should not divorce her. If a woman has a husband who's an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? And here what basically he's kind of saying, it gets even more complex than just single and married because once you're in the single and married situation, you could even get to a married situation where now you've become a follower of Christ and she or he didn't follow. Or 
you were both following Christ, and then he decided against it, turned his back on it. And Paul's saying these situations. And you can keep reading here. We're not going to go much further today, but you can keep reading. There's a lot, of, a lot of things in here. And I, I really encourage, if anything, if God's stirring in your heart right now, that's great, that's wonderful, go with that. But find someone that you can trust. It could be a pastor here. It could be my Aunt Charmin. It could be a number of other people who I know could mentor you really well. And talk to someone about some of these decisions or commitments. These things shouldn't be done alone. But you can work some of these things out, and there's so much teaching in here that's so helpful because life together is so complicated and complex. But in the end, what he says here is God has called you to peace. So if you are in a divorce situation, no matter how evil or ugly or horrible the other is being, you are called to peace. I love it. I have a group of guys I meet with. A lot of them are divorced. And one of the guys said very first thing, he goes, we will never speak ill of our ex. We'll talk about the stories and what we're going through, but we're always going to stop short of ever speak because we are called to peace. And what's sad is I've seen so many believers, people who say they follow Christ, who are just so evil to one another in some of these ways. And I'm not saying it's easy. Following Jesus is not easy. But God has called us to peace. And then he says, for how do you know? Maybe what you're doing will actually save the person. God has called us to pray for our enemies. And ultimately find a way to get our hearts to the same place that Jesus' heart is. We want to see that person saved. We want to see that person experience the shalom of God. I know that's hard. I know that's hard, but that's what we're called to. And lastly, just this last thing, Paul says in verse 35, I say this for your benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So he says, I say this for your benefit. You need to understand that the way of Jesus ultimately brings life. You stick, you stick with those dots, you'll eventually get to see it. And when you see it, you're going to go, well done, or you're going to say, faithful and true are all your judgments of Lord. You did not lead me astray. Everything I thought I was losing was actually me gaining. It's the promise of God. It's for your good. And then he says, not to lay any restraint upon you. And I love the way he talks about this. Work this out in community. Work this out in fellowship. Because the goal, the commandments of God are not burdensome. They might feel heavy or hard. But ultimately what you're going to see is they actually are freeing and life-giving. Reining in our sexual desires. Yeah, it's challenging. It's difficult. But in the end, it's what actually leads to life. It's, it's what's freeing for us. And then he says to promote good order. And this is where I just, I mean, I have to say, Christians, we have got to get this right. If we want to have any authority to be able to speak into the LGBT community about what brings life, we cannot be hypocrites we got to get this right because if we don't get this right, the world will go to hell. The amount of sexual destruction that is out there is so horrible. Let's at least be one community that finds the wholeness, that finds the beauty, that can say, come in here and find the oasis of intimacy, the goodness of the Lord. It's safe here. We may not be perfect, but it's safe here. We can't take this lightly. We, there's got to be a clear distinction between us and the world in the area of sexuality. 
And then he says to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. And this is what I love about what Sharman said. Is when it comes down to it, every single aspect of our lives has been granted us so that we could give it right back to Jesus. All of life is just to be worshipped to him. And it's hard to grasp, but every time we feel hunger, that's actually just a taste of the hunger that God wants us to have for him. Every time we feel satisfied by eating, it's just a taste of the satisfaction that Jesus has in mind for us with the heavenly food. And the same is true with thirst. The same is true with our sexual desires. They're just a picture that's pointing us to something that is so much better, so much richer, so much deeper, so much more forever that God is calling us into. We are made to know him and to enjoy him forevermore. That's the chief end of it all. Let's pray. Jesus, we quiet our hearts and minds in this place because we really want to hear from you. So Spirit, speak to the church as you would have us here today. Jesus, we thank you that you came and were tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin. And we thank you that you have called us into a relationship with you where we can tap into your strength. And I pray for all of us who lack so much self-control that your spirit would right now come and infuse us, infuse our mortal bodies, infuse our cluttered minds, infuse our wayward hearts with the same self-control that you walked in every single day of your life, Jesus. So that first we can honor you and please you, but also so that we can set an example, Lord, for those around us that they might be able to access and taste of your goodness.